Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The U.S. Senate is comprised of 100 senators, two from each state, and every two years, about one-third of the senatorial seats are on the ballot. Many people are not aware that the original Constitution provided for the selection of U.S. senators by the state legislatures. However, in 1913, the 17th Amendment was passed, providing for the direct election of senators by the people of the states. The current U.S. Senate has 53 Republicans, 45 Democrats, and two independents who caucus with the Democrats. This year, there are 35 Senate races, and the Democrats hope to take control of the Senate. To do so, Democrats will probably need to gain about four seats, possibly five, if Republicans retain the White House. The North Carolina U.S. Senate race between incumbent Tom Tillis and challenger Cal Cunningham is a key race that may determine whether the Democrats gain control of the U.S. Senate. The candidates had a debate last week and will have a second debate this week. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the role and the importance of the United States Senate and the North Carolina U.S. Senate race and how the outcome of this Senate race may affect our country's politics going forward. Joining us in this discussion is our colleague, Don Corbett, a constitutional law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law. Professor Corbett, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks Thank for joining you so us. Much for, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm happy to be here and hope I have something to say that makes some sense. Sure you will. Sure you will. All right. So, uh, Don, we're going to start with the basics. We assume that everyone knows this, but it's always good to kind of start from ground zero. So let's first start with the role of the Senate and where does the Senate get its authority? Uh, the Senate gets its authority, Professor Dawson, from Article 1 in the Constitution. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, the first three articles of the Constitution lay out the powers of each branch of government. So Article One covers the legislative branch, which is the House of Representatives and the Senate. Article Two represents the powers that are afforded to the executive branch, which would be uh, President Trump and all of the entities operate under him. And then Article Three uh, concerns the scope of judicial power in the Constitution. If you go a little bit forward, Article 4 talks about the relationship between the national slash federal government and the states. So the Senate has a really unique role <clears throat> in, obviously they are, uh, any legislation on a federal level that has to get passed has to be approved by the Senate. So that's obviously a part of its lawmaking abilities. But there are also some unique roles that they have. Like one of the things when we talk about President Trump, uh, when history talks about President Trump, one of the things that uh, will certainly go down as uh, an accomplishment, depending upon your perspective, is that he has been incredibly effective at appointing young, very conservative judges to federal judiciary positions uh, for life. And I do mean life, like the only way you can lose those jobs is if you're impeached or you resign. 
And I believe the last number I saw said that he had uh, he had done so for 208 judges. And that's more judges than George W. Bush did during his entire eight year run. And the reason that's important is because it now has given at least the thought process is that it's given the conservative uh, viewpoint when it comes to subjects like affirmative action and civil rights laws, which are so important to, to most of us. Uh, that now has a very different viewpoint based on who is sitting in the bench or sitting on the bench and, and, and deciding those cases. So it gives uh, that particular vantage point a real foothold in terms of what some of these laws and some of our rights will look like in the future. So, and the reason I say that that's key is because the Senate is the entity that has to approve those, uh, those judicial positions. So he and uh, Mitch McConnell have, uh, they may have not worked together great on everything, but at least with regard to that subject, they've been very effective. And like I said, established a foothold in the conservative uh, um, world for the way that they've worked uh, the uh, filling of these judicial openings. So there's that. There's also the Senate approves treaties. And like I said, the legislative uh, things that, that will come across from the House, all of those things are a part of the Senate role. And that's what makes it kind of unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And w- what about uh, impeachment? So we saw the Senate playing a very big role in, in that event that happened. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, can you explain the role that the House plays with impeachment, with the impeachment sure. process and the role that the Senate plays and, and why it was that it was resolved in the manner that it was when, when uh, President Trump was impeached? Sure, sure, I can give it a shot. So, so usually what happens is there will be a set of, once the idea is that the president has uh, overstepped his authority in some way, shape or form, Impeachment is the name of the process that can lead to the president being removed from office. Now, one thing that people aren't always clear about is merely being impeached doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be removed from office. It just means that that kind of covers the the process by which it can happen. So that process, again, once the idea is that the president has has breached his authority or overstepped his uh, his grounds or overstepped his powers, he uh, that can be impeached. That investigation usually takes place in a committee uh, at the House of Representatives level. Uh, oftentimes, the judiciary, I say oftentimes, we haven't had but three impeachments uh, in history. So the committee, the source of where the articles of impeachment can come from can vary. But we'll say, at least in this context, it's the Judiciary Committee. And then the parties on that committee will vote and uh, to approve or, or deny the articles that have been drafted. And if the uh, vote goes for impeachment, then the articles will go to the entire House of Representatives. And then that body votes on whether or not the president should be impeached. Now, if the answer to that is yes, then it goes to the Senate for a trial, okay? And in order to remove a a sitting president, you need two thirds of the senators to agree uh, to uh, the article or articles of impeachment before a president can be removed. So when Trump was uh, in, impeached by the House of Representatives, his trial was conducted by the Senate. And because, as you mentioned earlier, the Republicans hold control of the Senate, uh, they opted to acquit him of the uh, charges related to, in this case, it was the Ukraine and, and potential interference with the 
upcoming election. So he was the third president in history to be impeached. The first one was Andrew Johnson for events that happened during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. And the second, of course, was Bill Clinton. Uh, several of my students often think that Richard Nixon was, uh, was also impeached. He was not. Uh, he was about to be. And then uh, Barry Goldwater and some other senators went over and told him, you know, brother, we don't have any support for you, so you're going to have to do something. So he ended up stepping down before he was going to be impeached. So, so that's kind of the long and short of the process. We've only seen three of them in history, and hopefully it'll be a while before we see more. But the Senate is the entity that handles that particular trial. And that's another reason, as you said, that makes it unique. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. can, can, can I take you back uh, to uh, a point that uh, April made in her opening, uh, that uh, in uh, 1913, the uh, 17th Amendment was passed, which provided for the uh, direct election of uh, senators by uh, voters from the uh, various uh, states. Uh, why, why was that done? And what was the effect of uh, that change in the Constitution? Irv, you popped out on me for just a second. I didn't hear. So can you repeat why, it? Or why was the... Uh, 17th Amendment passed, and what was the effect of it? Uh, prior to 1913, the uh, senators were elected by the uh, state legislatures. Uh, and then uh, after the 17th Amendment uh, was passed, uh, then uh, the uh, senators were to be elected by the uh, people or the voters in each uh, state. And I'm just trying to you know, help our audience to understand uh, what was the effect of uh, of that uh, of that change in the uh, constitutional framework? Yeah, so so my memory is a little sketchy, but I'm going to do the best I can here. So so it, at least initially, Irv, I think the first proposal, like it wasn't the Constitution was adopted in I want to say 1788, right? And that's what stated, as Professor Dawson said, that the senators would be elected by state legislatures, and then eventually there were proposals to amend the constitution to elect senators by popular votes. But the idea really didn't gain support until like the 19th century because there were problems that began surfacing with regard to senatorial elections. You also had a number of state legislatures that were deadlocking over the elections of senators. So you had more in the way of vacancies on the Senate level that lasted for, in some cases, you know, a number of years. So. I think that was a part of the equation. And then, you know, there also became some private interests that gained power and were able to lobby a little bit more effectively about making the Senate more directly accountable to the people. So I think those are the primary reasons that you ended up with, with finding uh, with, with a different kind of process than had originally been envisioned by the framers. Uh, what's interesting now though, is that when there is a vacancy uh, in a Senate, then the, usually the governor is the one that will fill the vacancy if it's between a voting period. And one of those things, and, and April, if I go too far and I get in the weeds, just tell me to shut up. <laughs> but one of the things that's, that's going on down in Georgia now is they have a very unique senatorial race. Usually, as April said, you only have uh, one senator up at a time, but in Georgia, they currently have two up because one of the senators retired for health reasons and the governor gets to a point the senator at that point. He appointed a, a woman named Kelly Loeffler, I think is how you pronounce her name, who was a business owner and a business person down in, uh, down in Georgia. 
He did so against the recommendations of the president who wanted a guy named Doug Collins to be um, promoted to the Senate as opposed to Loeffler. So now there has to be this runoff and it's basically an all comers race. Anybody can run and uh, it's Loeffler and Collins and uh, the reverend of the, oh my goodness, I'm gonna mess this up, the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, his name is uh, Raphael Warnock. He is the leading Democrat. So they have to do a runoff in order to determine who will win that seat. But it was in part because the governor was the one that appointed the uh, appointed Senator Loeffler to the position. So you still have some remnants of that old system, but I think everybody would agree now it's better than people get to vote for it. Uh, the, um, at the House of Representatives, there is uh, an apportionment of uh, representatives based on the populations of uh, each state. And uh, the more people you have in the state, the more representatives you have in, uh, in the Congress. Why isn't that the situation with the, uh, with the Senate? such that states like uh, New York and California uh, have uh, two elected senators uh, and then little small uh, eeny beeny states like uh, Utah and South Dakota and places like that uh, also have uh, two. And then the uh, District of Columbia, uh, which has a larger population than many states, uh, doesn't have any uh, senator uh, yeah. sitting in the uh, legislature. So can you kind of explain <laughs> uh, why, why is there that difference? Yeah, well, the Constitution it is really a series of compromises, right? Uh, when the framers were trying to put it together, they had to get everybody on the same page. And and there was a there was a lot of areas where states disagreed. Obviously, the one that that people are probably most familiar with is the area of slavery, and and the people who were anti-slavery knew that there was no way that the uh, southern states were going to approve of any constitutional mandate that outlawed slavery. So that's where you end up with things like the fugitive slave clause. Uh, the three-fifths clause that to deal with the population question that you referenced. And, and um, you know, there was also a 20-year, I guess the word is moratorium, on the importation or any congressional law that would ban the importation of slaves uh, to give southern states more time to import uh, slaves from other parts of the world, primarily Africa. So that is the compromise that I think most people are familiar with, but but the other compromise speaks to what you referenced, Irv, and that is, you know, the larger states at the time obviously wanted much more of a say-so in terms of how the federal government was going to operate than the smaller states did. So how they ended up kind of compromising was the House of Representatives would be based on population in the way that you described, whereas the Senate would be based on uh, land, so to speak. So your states, as defined as states, would end up with the same number of senators, no matter what the, uh, the population of the state was. And the idea was that this is a way that we give everybody equal footing in the conversation. So the question is, is whether that's really fair. You know, do you really want a state as small as Idaho dictating, you know, in some ways, really, really important issues. But, but that was the way that, uh, that it came about.
Yeah, and I think the uh, concern is we're really acutely aware of the concern when we're looking at issues like impeachment, when we're looking at issues like judges, where the House of Representatives, they don't play a role in, uh, at least with respect to the impeachment trial or, you know, um, approving of the, the judges. And so you have smaller states having an, an, um, an outsized impact on, on these issues that have a national effect. And so you know, that there are some concerns about our constitutional legislative structure is of no surprise. And uh, it's something that I think we'll, con we'll continue to talk about as we see a lot of these major issues where there is divide or and particularly where the Senate may be acting in a way that's inconsistent with the larger, you know, belief of the of the population. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the United States Senate. And we have with us sharing his wisdom is Professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law at North Carolina Central University School of Law. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Fears of the coronavirus pandemic endangering voters in North Carolina and around the nation this fall are a serious concern. In light of this, voting by mail is expected to significantly increase this year. Absentee voting by mail is an option for North Carolina voters who don't want to go to the polls to cast their votes in person. Anyone who wants to vote by mail can do so. There are several steps to voting by mail in North Carolina. First, voters have to request a mail-in ballot. Absentee ballot request forms can be found online at the North Carolina State Board of Elections website or in person at your local county Board of Elections office. After your ballot arrives, make sure you fill the ballot out according to the instructions provided on the ballot in front of at least one witness. The witness should not see who you have voted for, but needs to see that you have filled out the ballot. Lastly, make sure you return your ballot on time so that it may be counted. Any ballot postmarked on or before Election Day and that gets delivered no later than three days after the election will be counted. It is possible that officials might not accept your ballot if your ballot is not filled out correctly or if your ballot arrives late. However, due to a new North Carolina court order, the state must give voters a second chance to fix any problems that might keep their mail-in ballot from being counted. People can request an absentee ballot at any point from now until 5 p.m. on Tuesday, October the 27th, one week before Election Day on November the 3rd. Please note that simply getting a mail-in ballot does not mean that you have to use that ballot. So long as you don't also mail in a ballot, you can change your mind and vote in person. More information is at ncsbe.gov and newsobserver.com. Virtual Justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with law professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law and other courses at North Carolina Central University School of Law. 
And we're talking this hour about the United States Senate. And right before the break, we were talking about, Don, you were talking about uh, this compromise that gave rise to um, representation, population representation in the House of Representatives, and then really kind of land or state representation in the Senate. And we were talking about the uh, outsized influence that maybe some of these smaller states have as a result of that. Uh, can Before we start talking about the North Carolina race and some of the key issues that will that, that voters who are still trying to determine who to vote for in this race will focus on. I wanna talk a little bit about the benefits that the party in the majority of the Senate has. And so not only do you have a situation where um, you've got all states having two representatives, but the, the, the majority within the Senate has a lot of power as well. And we've seen Mitch McConnell exercise that power to the benefit of, of his party. So can you talk a little bit about the Senate majority leader and um, the type of power that they can wield? Yeah, and-, and before, some, you, Doug, before you please. do that, let me just make one quick point as a follow-up to your uh, last uh, answer. And that has to do with uh, the uh, District of Columbia. Uh, for our audience, uh, you, you should know that uh, despite the large population uh, that's uh, in that uh, in the District of, Co of Columbia, uh, with a majority being African American, uh, the District of, of Columbia is not a state, and as such, it does not have a uh, a senator, uh, and it has a non-voting member in the House of uh, Representatives uh, that uh, sits uh, there with voice but no vote. Uh, so the residents of the District of Columbia are disenfranchised to the extent that they don't wield the political power that is uh, present in, uh, in, in, in many of the uh, smaller states and are not treated, treated and is not treated as a state because it doesn't have uh, that uh, status within our constitutional structure. So I just wanted to throw that in, uh, Don, so please forgive me for uh, cutting across uh, your response to uh, the last question. No, it's no problem. I mean, I, I think part of the, it's, I mean, it's historically grounded in, in the, from, from long, 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 long time ago in the sense that I think when, when the constitution was passed, the DC used to be, as was made, as was the case with a lot of, uh, or all of the United States territory was a home to an, an Indian tribe, an ancestral home to an Indian tribe. I cannot think, I, I wanna say they were known as the Anacostians. I think that's right because I think about Anacostia in DC and that's where, so, so in any event, the colonists drive them out of their land and, and DC. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and DC becomes part of Maryland and Virginia. And then both of those states cede a territory to establish DC as the capital of the United States. But at the time, there are only about 3,000 people living in DC. This is around 1790. And that was too few to become a state. And, and the white men who owned property in DC, they either voted in Maryland or Virginia as they had before. So that's kind of the historical root of why DC is a state. It doesn't make any sense why it's not a state now, but I think there's a lot of political and social reasons as to why that's the case. But, but it's a long, long, uh, you know, if, you've, if you've been in DC and you've seen the license plates that say taxation without representation, it's, it's long-standing difficulties, long-standing problems with that particular issue. 
Okay. All right. Well, that was, uh, yeah, Irv, I'm glad you um, interjected and, and added that. That's a really important point for us to make. And, and again, it um, just underscores some problems with the structure of our current legislative branch. And so, Don, can you talk about the role of the Senate Majority Leader and, and so the power that that position um, wields and why it is that the Democrats may be so anxious to try to flip the House? Because- Or the uh, Senate, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the, that person is kind of the quarterback of everything. And, and you, and unfortunately, uh, for these people of, of my persuasion, he, uh, Mitch McConnell has exercised his power by really in many instances failing to do anything. And you get that in a couple of different ways. It doesn't matter how many bills the House pass or House passes. Uh, if McConnell decides not to bring it to the floor of the Senate, it never moves. I think that's been part of the problem with the recent stimulus packages that the House has passed. Uh, the Senate's failed to take them up because he's not brought them to the floor. If you think about the uh, right before President Obama stepped down, uh, we had a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Uh, he nominated a gentleman named Merrick Garland to that position. McConnell refused to take Garland's name to the Senate for a vote. Uh, so it, it becomes the place where, where ideas that are important to an awful lot of people go to die because the Senate majority has the ability to say, no, we're not gonna take that up at this particular time. And it can literally grind all kinds of legislation to a halt. So, so for Democrats, the idea of uh, flipping the Senate is incredibly important because if you can maintain control of the House and then kind of seize control of the Senate, now you can start to uh, move the country in the way that you think it ought to be moving. Now, there's still complications even with that, right? Because as we've seen with the Republicans, just because you uh, are in possession of all three branches of government, I shouldn't say all three, courts technically is, uh, is independent. But when I say three, I think about the House, the Senate, and the, uh, and the presidency. Well, even if you have control of those three entities, then that still means that you may have to work out some things within your party, right? So even if the House Democrats I'm sorry, the Democrats retain control of the House and then win the Senate and then Biden wins the presidency. Well, it would look good on paper and would probably feel a lot better to a lot of people, but then becomes a problem of how exactly do you govern? And as people know, there's a very, very progressive wing of the party that wants to see things like Medicare for all. And they want to see the police defunded in you know, one way or another. Uh, but that may not necessarily be the case uh, for all Democrats, many of whom may be presiding over districts that are relatively or somewhat conservative. So obviously you can't, you can't make, you can't deal. That's, that's probably a good problem for Democrats to have. They'd much rather have that problem than the current problem, but that's why the, uh, the, the, the person who is kind of spearheading the Senate has so much authority to make things go or not, uh, depending on what his particular politics are and, and what the agenda is of those in power. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in, in light of that, how, how, how can we call this a democracy? I don't know that you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that you can. I mean, that, and that's, that's a debate I have with students all the time, you know, is that, you know, we, we know what the Constitution says, right? We know what the principles are that underlie the Constitution. 
but the execution of those principles falls within the ambit of people and people's personal interests and political interests will often dictate exactly how things go. And whether that looks like a constitution, or I'm sorry, whether that looks like a democracy usually depends on what you think about the people in power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to that point, this kind of takes us a little bit back to the, the 17th Amendment. Um, the, the way the original constitution kind of set up our government, you know, you have the, the members of the house being elected by the people you had senators being elected by and selected by the state legislatures, and then you had the president being selected by the electoral college. So when you look at that structure, it really is not, and nor was it ever intended to be a pure democracy. Um, so we can understand why it's so pressing on the Democrats, uh, why they're so pressed about trying to flip the, the Senate. There's a lot of control that they don't have that they want to be able to to have. And even if they don't win the White House, even if the Democrats don't win the White House, they will be able to uh, have some movement if they can get control of the Senate. And, you know, they need to get to four, maybe five um, senatorial races that are flipped. They may very well be able to do that. There are a number of Senate races that are in contention. So in addition to North Carolina, which we'll talk about um, you have Arizona, um, you've got Maine, you've got Iowa, Colorado, maybe Montana. So there is, you know, the Democrats are optimistic that they may be able to get to that number. And one of the key races is North Carolina. And Don, can you talk about um, one? So this particular seat, this particular Senate seat, we've had one term senators. So we had Elizabeth Dole, who was a one-term senator. Then we had Kay Hagan, who was a one-term senator. Now we have Tom Tillis. Uh, Right now he is down in the polls. And can you talk about, I guess, North Carolina and and why it is, at least with this particular Senate seat, it, it is typically close, you know, gives rise to a close race and it can be up for grabs. What is it about North Carolina that makes this Senate race um, a toss up at this point. Yeah, yeah. So again, now if I get too far in the weeds, just cut my mic off. But I think before you can talk about that, I think you have to understand how much the demographics in North Carolina are shifting. Uh, what you have now is Research Triangle Park, which is a really attractive area for lots of uh, tech folks. And what you're seeing is that area plus the cost of living. Uh, is pulling in people from uh, the Midwest and the Northeast parts of the country to either relocate or retire. So for us, it's Research Triangle. In Charlotte, it's the banking industry. So you've got a a good climate. Uh, You can can make a good living down here, and you can do so fairly cheaply in comparison to other larger cities across the country. So these changes are creating a change in, in our overall population base as well as our ideas about about how the country should run. So what you're going to find is is this is going to bear this is going to play itself out in um, in a lot of our political campaigns. And for this one, for this year especially, as you mentioned, it's the senatorial campaign. The gentleman who is the incumbent is uh, a guy named Tom Tillis, and uh, as you said, he is in his first term in the Senate. Uh, the other senator, just in case people are, are unaware, is a gentleman named Richard Burr, but he is not on the ballot this time. Uh, Mr. Tillis is running against another gentleman named Cal Cunningham. 
Mr. Cunningham is a lawyer by trade, uh, and he's also an Iraq-Afghan war vet. And his messaging, I think, and his profile is attractive to people. And I think that you can anticipate that he will run pretty strongly in metropolitan areas like Raleigh and Durham and Charlotte and Greensboro. And, you know, that Tillis will run a little bit more strongly in, in your rural areas that tend to lean much more heavily Republican. The challenge for Tillis is that he gives conservatives pause. And I think part of the, the reason for that is that, as, as you all know, like almost unyielding fealty to President Trump is almost a requirement now to be a Republican. And, and back in 2019, uh, if you remember President Trump, uh, there was an emergency declaration from him to pay for the construction of a border along the U.S.-Mexico line. Well, Tillis actually wrote an op-ed that appeared in the Washington Post. And the, the, the long and the short of it, it's been a while since I read it, but the long and short of it was that he basically vowed that he was going to stand on principle uh, for the Congress against what he called executive overreach. And he then subsequently voted uh, uh, against the resolution, I think, to block Trump's action. But, but that editorial made a lot of waves in the Republican Party, and it made people question his conservative bona fides. So what you may see in some counties is Trump running very strongly, but then maybe Cunningham peeling off some of those conservative votes for folk who don't trust Tillis quite as much as, as is the case in other states. So, you know, and, and this is, and again, Tillis has been a fairly loyal Republican, you know, in terms of his voting pattern and the like, but this one particular instance, I don't know, this, and this is a little bit more trivial, but, you know, he's also been on the record about the importance of wearing masks during the during COVID-19. And obviously that's gonna be at odds with, with some folks who, uh, uh, rally behind the president. So I think it's just a combination of those things that make people think that maybe Tillis isn't one of quote unquote us, and that maybe we need to look in a different direction. So so Cunningham has been running pretty, pretty well. Um, I know someone told me 12, 15 years ago that this would be the case. I probably would have said, no, that's crazy, but, but he's actually ahead in a lot of polls. It's not by a lot, it's usually within the margin of error, but he is running pretty well. And the question is whether you know, Tillis can attach himself to Trump closely enough to put him over the top. So I think it could be one of those things where if Trump wins the state and wins it fairly handily, you know, and when I say handily, I mean like five points or better, then Tillis probably will get carried along with him. But if Trump really struggles in North Carolina or perhaps loses in North Carolina, I think that's it for Tillis. And, and if Cunningham wins, then in the bigger picture, I think it really swings the door open for Democrats to take control of the Senate. Mm -hmm. Other, other than being a Democrat, what's the uh, fundamental difference between uh, Cunningham and uh, Tillis with respect to policy positions that they would uh, take? And I guess from my vantage point in terms of the uh, uh, situation affecting African-Americans and how would he uh, tend to line up? I don't know, Irv, that there is a ton of difference between them, especially on that level. I mean, I, I think in the big picture, you know, there's they're going to fall under each party's umbrella when it comes to stuff like taxes and, and trade policy and immigration. But I, I don't know that Cunningham 
has really aggressively stated out a position with regard to civil rights and the like. I've, I've not heard that from his campaign. Maybe I've just missed it. But uh, along those lines, I think they kind of retreat to their respective party corners and would vote to support, uh, you know, issues that the, that the, the talking points from the party about things like trade. So I think we just have to kind of wait and see, because I don't think, I think he was maybe a one-term state senator. I don't remember exactly. So he doesn't have a hugely extensive voting record. And, and I'm not seeing, as I said, I missed the debate the other night, so maybe they spoke to it at the debate, but I've not seen um, a ton of things from him other than I'm not Tom Tillis. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, during the debate, actually, there, there was the question about systemic racism and Tom Tillis did talked about it. He mentioned eugenics in the state of North Carolina, but then uh, shifted very quickly and was talking about um, police and how we have to, you know, protect the police. And um, so the majority of his response focused on law enforcement, whereas Cal Cunningham focused on all of the different areas in which you do have racism. So he mentioned, of course, law enforcement, but he also mentioned healthcare. He mentioned education. He mentioned work. And so uh, you're right. He doesn't have much of a legislative um, background. He was a one-term state senator. Uh, He was 27 years old when he was in that position. But he does, you know, kind of fall in line with the kind of democratic platform. But he was much more forthcoming in the debate in talking about and recognizing the existence of racism in all levels of, you know, interaction in our in our country. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the North Carolina Senate race. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law at North Carolina Central University School of Law. We're gonna take a quick break. We will be right back. We hope you stay with us. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www.wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us. Uh, we are discussing uh, the uh, United States Senate and uh, its importance to our uh, democracy. And we are talking with an expert uh, in this uh, area, and that's uh, Professor Don Corbett, who is a constitutional law professor at North Carolina Central University uh, School, of, uh, School of Law. Uh, and we are certainly thankful for him uh, for bringing the information that he is providing. When we took our break, we were talking about 
the uh, candidacy of uh, Cal Cunningham uh, versus that of uh, uh, Tom Tillis, uh, who are the uh, Republican and Democratic candidates. And uh, one of the points uh, that's often made in the uh, various commercials uh, uh, promoting the candidacy of uh, Cunningham is his uh, military service, his military uh, background. And although there isn't any information uh, directly on point, uh, the suggestion is that Tom Tillis does not have a uh, military uh, background. Uh, so, uh, Professor uh, Corbett, how, how, how important is uh, that uh, going to be uh, in, this, uh, in this election coming up? Not really sure. Uh, I'm not really sure. I know that uh, I want to say that he. And again, I don't want to. I don't want to misspeak because I. I don't believe Tillis has a military background. I could be totally wrong about that. I don't no, think he, he, does. he doesn't. No. Okay, thanks. So, so for Cunningham, he uh, I believe was commissioned in the Army Reserve, and uh, what's called the Judge Advocate General Corps, and he, you know. And as a member of the reserve, he's, uh, I think he serves with an airborne unit and he has been mobilized before. So he's been, you know, across the sea, as they say, uh, with the special ops force in Afghanistan. So I think one of the things that having that sort of kind of decorated military leadership or military background does is it undercuts the argument that often Republicans use against Democrats that this person is going to be soft on law and order that this person actually is not for law and order. And I'm the person that's better off protecting you uh, from some of the, you know, ne'er-do-wells that exist in society. Well, Cunningham has literally been out protecting the United States uh, through his military duty. So I think it's a harder attack point for Tillis than it would be in other circumstances. And when you look at the uh, advertisements, certainly on the national front with Trump, and now you're starting to see more of it locally in advertisements uh, against Roy Cooper. One of the things that the Republicans have taken as a platform is this issue of law and order because all of the brown and black people are coming to get you and they're moving into a neighborhood near you and so on and so forth. But uh, again, given, given uh, Cunningham's background in the military, it's very, very difficult to say that that when he's been, like I said, literally on the wall protecting American interests abroad, uh, that he has no interest in law and order. And I think that's hurtful for Tillis in a way that it might be, might not be for other candidates. Well, you, you would think uh, in light of the fact that we have a large number of uh, military people here in uh, the state with uh, major uh, installations in uh, Fayetteville, uh, Fort Bragg, Camp Lejeune, in uh, Jacksonville and uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in uh, Goldsboro. Um, and it seemed, you know, with uh, the kind of uh, uh, critique presently uh, surrounding uh, the, uh, the president uh, regarding his denigrating uh, members of the uh, military, particularly uh, the military uh, leadership, that that would seem to be a political advantage. Uh, and I'm looking at someone like uh, Tammy Duckworth, uh, for instance, who is the uh, senator from, uh, from Illinois, uh, who uh, lost two legs uh, in, uh, in, in, in service and uh, won overwhelmingly from 
that state. Uh, do you see that same kind of, of sentiment uh, present in, uh, in North Carolina that might advantage uh, Cal Cunningham in a race like this? So, so here's, here's what I think is really interesting, right? Because it's not just the things that you mentioned, but it's also the recent report from the Atlantic magazine where Trump is, um, at least allegedly, I think he probably said it, uh, on the record as being highly critical of, of the military and some of the people that comprise it, uh, calling them losers and suckers. And, and for someone as transactional as Trump is about relationships, I think it's hard for him to imagine that someone would so willingly sacrifice something for the country without getting something in return. So I think that those comments uh, have resonated with people. And the question just is, what does that look like in terms of the overall book? Because I think you're exactly right. I think given the close relationship that our state has with the military, given the comments that the president's made, and now given Cunningham's status as, as an army reservist, you would think that those factors line up really nicely for him uh, and would help him do very well in that segment of the community. But, you know, after after 216, man, I, I don't bet on on nothing, you know, because you just really never know. I think it'll be fascinating to see after the race is over what the military vote was for both Trump and Tillis. Uh, but given how close the race is, I think that if it if it is as the White House fears it is, which is that is going to be, those statements are going to be really impactful and harmful uh, with regard to which way the military is leaning, then that could be the very thing that puts Cunningham over the, trunk, over the top. I mean, obviously all of it, depending on turnout as well. But, but I think it really, the, the people in Cunningham's camp had to be smiling at least a little bit when they heard about the Atlantic and then saw the administration's, you know, really strong protests about uh, how it had not been said, and, and which led me to believe that it, it really was said. And you know, that's one of the interesting things about North Carolina is you, you can definitely, it would be of no surprise if North Carolina uh, voted for Trump, but split and voted for Cal Cunningham. We saw that with the uh, governor. So we have Trump winning, but we also have Roy Cooper winning. And so North Carolina has a, a large number of independents, uh, uh, voters who don't necessarily vote straight party ticket that really do think about who's representing the state. And so, um, you know, voting for Trump, even if they were discouraged by the statements that were reported in the story in the Atlantic, they may still cast a ballot for him as our, you know, kind of national leader. Uh, but there still may not be love for Tillis and the military service may be something that helps people to trust uh, Cal Cunningham just, just a little bit more. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that we have a split like that when it comes to the, the Senate race as well. And, and so also, you know, if you, if you look at the history in North Carolina, uh, North Carolina voters uh, have not in the past shown any great love for any senator uh, that they have uh, elected other than uh, Jesse Helms. Uh, but for uh, roughly decades, uh, you had a bunch of uh, one-term uh, senators, both on the Republican side and on the uh, Democratic uh, side. And uh, this may be uh, Tom Tillis's Waterloo, uh, his one shot at uh, fame and fortune. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And and so let's talk a little bit about. Um, well, let me ask you, Don. Was there was there anything else that you wanted to kind of comment on regarding this North Carolina Senate race? And then maybe we can turn and talk about some of the other interesting races, uh, Senate races in the country that might get the Democrats to that four or five. I think I think we covered it. I think we covered it. I think it's going to be very very close. Uh, again, I think if Trump is able to hang on and win the state by three to five points, that bodes really, really well for, for Tillis. But it's not, as, as Irv said, you know, we as a state have a habit of getting people up out the paint after one term. So it could be that that benefits Tillis, but it may not. It may not. We just have to see. So I think, but I, I definitely think North Carolina is going to be influential uh, on the national scale. And that will have implications on the local races as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other Senate races that are in play that will that folks will be keeping an eye on on election night? Yeah, there's there's several of them. I mentioned the race out of Georgia, but that may not be, uh, you know, that that's probably going to end up leaning Republican uh, because there, as I said, there are two uh, there are two seats that are up this time around. The incumbent is a gentleman named David Perdue. In one seat, he's running up against uh, a Democrat. I think the guy's name is Ossoff, but that's probably Purdue's race to lose. And it's it's hard for me to imagine that that there's going to be a Democrat to come out of the other uh, the runoff because you have to in order to win. I think a candidate has to receive 50 percent plus one vote in November. So if you fall short of that 50 percent threshold, that means there's going to be a runoff between those top two individuals at a later date. So it's just hard for me, you know, I'm, I'm pulling for, for Reverend Warnock, but I don't know that there's going to be enough votes there for him. Uh, and it may end up coming down to Loeffler and Collins. Uh, but the other races I would, that, that come to mind right away, uh, there's one out in Arizona. Uh, there's a woman uh, who is currently in office named Martha McSally. And she's running against a gentleman named Mark Kelly. Uh, Kelly is a former astronaut. He was also married, though, to Gabrielle Giffords, who I believe was a former House representative. I don't know if you remember, but she uh, ended up getting shot in a mass shooting, uh, shot in the head, fortunately recovered. And Kelly is running against McSally. And just about every poll suggests that Kelly has a really sizable lead and is probably going to win that race. And now that would give Arizona two Democratic senators. And the question is, again, how, how much does that play out on the big picture race between Biden and, uh, and, and Trump? Uh, there's another one in Alabama. I can't remember April, the guy's name. The, the current, the, the incumbent is a gentleman named Doug Jones. And he ran against a guy, I cannot remember his name, but he's the, the, the previous candidate who had a, the allegation was that he had an unhealthy fixation on teenage girls and it ended up hurting him in the vote. So Jones, as a Democrat, ends up winning the election, but Alabama is a thoroughly Republican state, and it will go very strong for Trump. Jones is running against a guy named Tommy Tuberville, who was a former football coach at Auburn, and Tuberville has hitched his wagon very, very closely to Trump. So that could be a seat that goes from Democratic to Republican. Uh, so I don't, I don't see Jones being able to hang on there. Uh, Oh, I can't think. Oh, it, um, Maine. There is a, a woman named Susan Collins who's the incumbent. She's a Republican. She is deemed to be a moderate, but 
that doesn't, I wouldn't put her in the category of being a closet Democrat. I think moderate now just means you're not as far right as your colleagues are. But she ended up casting a fairly, two fairly controversial votes this past year, one for the uh, confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh uh, to the Supreme Court, and the other one was against uh, convicting Donald Trump in the impeachment trial. And this did some damage to her standing as a moderate. And she is running against a woman named Sarah Gideon, who I think is the former Speaker of the House in Maine. And Gideon has been up somewhere between six to nine points for pretty much the entire summer. So Collins has a real uphill battle. And it's another one of those states that if Democrats can win, uh, that will help them feel really good about the big picture. So those are just a handful. There are others. Uh, There's a pretty close race in Iowa. There's a pretty close race in Kansas. Uh, But I think it's that... It's really those three to five races that are going to make a huge difference. That's probably North Carolina, Maine. Uh, Colorado is another one where the Republican incumbent is in some trouble. And we'll just have to see how those races turn out and you know whether all the votes get counted in time for these people to keep from claiming victory, even if they don't have all the votes. Mm-hmm. Well, do you, think is- the enth- do you think the enthusiasm that uh, has popped up and gone down and popped back up again will uh, continue over the uh, next uh, 50 uh, odd, or I guess 45 odd days uh, and uh, drive these people out to to the polls uh, either to uh, mail in uh, their ballots or to cast. Uh, Yeah, you mentioned a couple things there that are interesting, right? So the first one is like, what will be the impact of, of the mail-in ballots, right? Because there are some states that, uh, that you can begin counting the ballots as they come in. And there are other states that don't allow you to count the ballots until election night is over. So as you know, President Trump has been out there with the, the bullhorn countless times uh, talking about the potential of, of fraud with the mail-in ballots and has basically put out there that the only way I can lose is by fraud. So obviously, if I win through the mail-in ballots, it's okay. But if I lose, it's because all these uh, fraudulent votes were being cast. So the question that I have is, is that going to impact the Republican turnout, right? If you've got senior citizens who typically vote Republican, but because of COVID, they're worried about going out and voting in person, will Trump's uh, uh, offerings about the the fraudulence of the mail-in system keep them from voting at all? And that would be problematic for him as well as other uh, Republicans down the line. I think that the enthusiasm, I think you're right. There's just, there's so much other stuff going on in the world that it's hard to sustain continual enthusiasm about anything, you know? But I think that once the parties begin the debate process, which I think happens in the next few weeks, then I think you'll start to see people ramp up more interest and, and hopefully they'll get out and get to the polls and, and, uh, and do so safely. So we'll, we'll have to see how it turns out. You know, one of the things we we didn't talk about, well, you talked about it in the context of confirmation of federal judges, uh, the Supreme Court. And we know that Trump has uh, appointed two justices, so Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, and uh, they replaced two conservative justices, uh, but we have two very liberal justices on the court who are in their 80s. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is again uh, fighting cancer, um, and we've got 
uh, Stephen Breyer. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 87, uh, Breyer is 82, and it is very likely that the next president will be able to appoint <laughs> at least one and very possibly two justices on the Supreme Court. It has always appeared to me that the Republicans have been really mindful of that fact that whoever's in the White House, they will control kind of who's on the Supreme Court. Uh, the Democrats have been kind of slow to wrap their head around that. And I, and I think in some ways that explains why some people might vote for Trump, uh, but not vote for Republicans in a statewide office, right? Mm -hmm. And so because they understand the importance of the Supreme Court. Do you have a sense that Democrats are more aware of the importance of the Supreme Court and what this election will mean at the top of the <clears throat> ticket as it relates to the composition of the court? The answer is I hope so. I hope so. Because one of the things that the, that the administration did that was, I thought, very, very smart was to you know, Trump himself has always been pretty malleable about what his political interests are and where they align. But one of the things that he did that I thought was, was very, very smart in the initial campaign in 16 was he made it clear about the kind of justices he was going to appoint to the court. So for people who are one issue voters and that issue happens to be abortion, hearing that probably made them much more inclined to vote for him because the thought is that if we can get more conservatives on the court, then maybe we get to a point where we can take down Roe v. Wade. But I think now, or at least I hope now, that Democrats see the importance of that, not just with regard to the Supreme Court, but also the judges that are being appointed at the federal district court level and the circuit court appeals, or the, the appellate circuit court level on the federal side, and that there will be much more of a concerted effort, not just to make voters aware of that, uh, of that particular challenge, but also when they get there, to make sure that they get those judges approved in the same way that Trump has. And that's why the Senate race is so important because if Biden wins the presidency, but uh, the, the Senate stays in the control of the Republicans, then you can see McConnell doing the same thing with, with Biden's judge list that he did with Obama's judge list, uh, but has not done with the Trump judge list. So, so it's really, really important and really key. And I hope it does become more of a focus for Democrats, but I'm telling you, I have not heard Biden talk much about that. Uh, during the campaign. So I just hope that that's something that they will make a priority, even if they haven't discussed it very much thus far. All right. Well, we're, unfortunately, we're out of time. We would like to thank our guest, Professor Don Corbett, who teaches constitutional law and other courses at North Carolina Central University School of Law. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. We're going to have you back uh, to talk about the election and the results. It will be um, fascinating. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. And we'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, or if there's a topic you'd like for us to cover, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.